Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. I very much look forward to welcoming two great new MPs. The Conservative and Liberal parties hold their seats in four by-elections. But are the results a dangerous signal for the official opposition? Conservative commentator Fred Delory thinks so and explains why. There is no way we will agree to shutting down our oil and natural gas industry or phasing out our oil and natural gas workers. Can Ottawa and Alberta find common ground on energy and emissions? The Premier says talks with federal ministers were constructive, but Danielle Smith is keeping a line in the sand. I'll speak with Adam Legg of the Business Council of Alberta. And a look at the crisis in Canada's emergency rooms and a new warning to expect record high wait times and closures this summer. Nursing Union President Linda Silas offers her perspective. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson in for Michael Serapio. We start with last night's federal by-elections where the Liberals and Conservatives each held on to a pair of seats. Former Liberal Party President Anna Ganey won the Montreal riding of Notre-Dame-de-Grâce Westmount. And in Winnipeg's South Centre, Ben Carr will succeed his late father Jim as a Liberal Member of Parliament. Nearby in Portage-Lisgar, Manitoba, Conservative Brandon Leslie defeated People's Party leader Maxime Bernier. And in Oxford, Ontario, Arpen Canna has kept the riding Conservative despite a boost in Liberal support. Here's the Prime Minister's reaction. I want to start by thanking the thousands of Canadians who came out to exercise their democratic rights in voting in the four by-elections that were held across the country last night. I very much look forward to welcoming two great new MPs uh, in both Winnipeg and in uh, Montreal and highlight uh, that our message is resonating because we had a very strong showing uh, in a challenging riding for us in Oxford uh, in rural Ontario. So we're uh, very excited about continuing to share strong positive messages with Canadians over the coming summer. So that is some liberal reaction to the four by-elections. But what did the results mean for the official opposition? Let's dig deeper with Fred Delory, who managed the 2021 Conservative campaign under Aaron O'Toole and last year was executive chair of Patrick Brown's leadership campaign. He's now managing partner at Delory Public Affairs. Fred, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. Now, you write that uh, these results are a jarring wake-up call for the Conservative Party of Canada, even though when you take the bird's-eye view... Uh, we still have the status quo in terms of the two liberal seats and the two right. conservative seats not changing hands. Right. Why do you think uh, there are some red flags here? Well, the biggest thing with by-elections are they are opportunities for the official opposition to grow. Uh, that is always the standard you look at. Uh, it is a way to vote against the, the government without changing the government. There's no risk to it. Uh, so you tend to get uh, an increase in vote for, for the official opposition, whatever party that may be. And in this case, not just these four, but if you go back to the fall, there was another by-election in Mississauga Lakeshore. Of those five by-elections, four of them, we have gone down in support. Uh, we're going the wrong direction. Uh, if we want to be able to replace the Liberals, and that is what we want to do in the next general election, we have to show that we can actually grow our vote and not lose it. Okay, so how much should we read into by-election results, though? Because, you know, often we talk about there's not a lot of turnout. Leaders sometimes get involved in these campaigns. When you look at the numbers 
from last night. What stands out for you in these four writings? Yeah, well, I think by-elections are actually way more important and better indicators of trends than any of the broad national polls that you see. It actually tells us people are actually going to the ballot box and casting their ballots now. And what we're seeing, again, was a, a downturn in conservative vote, uh, which is problematic. The Liberals have had, arguably, the worst three months of any government I've seen in a long time. Uh, they took a real pounding in the House and it didn't show in the polls, though. They actually, their vote went up in a number of ridings. So, uh, you know, a more optimistic conservative might say, look, on our right flank, we reduced the PPC support in Portage-Lisgar. We defeated Maxime Bernier again. And we only lost a few percentage points in Oxford, Ontario, despite all of the discord among conservatives over that nomination. What do you think about that? It's a tremendous risk to be fighting for that right-wing vote, because what does it cost us in, the, in center Canada? Uh, we did go after it. The, the Conservatives ran a very aggressive campaign. They had their candidate talking about uh, conversion therapy. They attacked Max and Bernier for wearing a, a, a Pride Parade t-shirt. Uh, a lot of different things there that would not play well in other ridings, and I think the Liberals now have a treasure trove of stuff to attack us on as well. So there's a risk here. You can go for the right, and there's a lot of the Conservatives who think you need to go and eat that PPC vote back. It cost us four to five seats in the last election, so it did impact us. But how many seats does it impact us on the other side of it is going to be the question. Okay, and I want to talk about what the results looked like in cities last night, because your former leader, Aaron O'Toole, in leaving Parliament last week, you know, he left it with this warning uh, that the Conservatives, at the end of the day, they need to have more votes in those urban and suburban ridings. In 2021, you did make some gains, uh, but not enough to win a lot of seats in the GTA, for instance. So what stands out for you when you look at Winnipeg and Montreal? Yeah, well, our vote dropped. And again, if we want to replace the Liberals, we need to be increasing our vote, not dropping it. And this is a time when, you know, official opposition parties, governments shouldn't win by-elections, official opposition should. Uh, so to not even tighten it up, but to actually retreat and to do poorly is not a good indicator. Okay, so let's talk about the leader then, Pierre Polyev. Uh, how do you think his leadership style over the past nine months plays into the results that we saw last night? Uh, well, look, his numbers are not good right now. His personal numbers, his negatives are very high, and they're increasing. They've doubled almost, in the, or they, yeah, they've almost doubled in the past year as negatives by, based on national polling. Uh, he has a major problem with women voters. Uh, I've never seen uh, anyone, legitimate candidate for prime minister, have such a negative with one of the genders the, so so poorly. Uh, so there's, they're going to have to figure that out, uh, how they can uh, improve that, because if you have that high of a negative, it's going to be very hard to get people to vote for you. However, though, I, you know, most recent polls at the party level, at least, do have the Conservatives under Mr. Polyev ahead of the Liberals. And, and you've argued that the Conservative message on inflation and affordability, uh, affordability, I should say, that it's resonating, that the party has been strong recently on, on foreign interference. So uh, why do you think there's this disparity then in terms of how the party is polling and what we're seeing yeah. on the leader? Yeah, I think that's... Um a lot of the party's success is, I think, a lot of people parking their vote with us right now. They're not happy with the Liberals. We're seeing that. There's a lot of dissatisfaction with the government and people want change. So it's easy when you're doing a poll to, to park that vote with us. But like I said earlier, when you go to the ballot box to cast a ballot, it's a very different thing. And that's where the Conservatives need to, need to smooth the edges here. Uh, it's something we've been working on for a while in a number of elections. Until we do that, it'll be very hard to succeed. Okay. Um we could be more than two years away from a federal election, but perhaps not. We don't know in a minority parliament. Um, 
we are about to head into the summer barbecue season. Parliament is wrapping up, so we won't have that uh, daily debate for the Conservatives in question period. What are you going to be watching for uh, with Mr. Polyev and with the party as a whole as we head into the summer barbecue season and eventually to the Conservative Convention this fall? So Mr. Polyev, one thing to his credit, he's bringing in massive crowds wherever he goes. I've never seen that before, too. Mr. Trudeau, when he was first elected leader, was, was bringing in big crowds, but it feels like Polyev's bringing in bigger ones, and they're fired up. What's going to be interesting is what is his message to this crowd? Is he still talking about global conspiracies, the Great Reset? Is he talking about those issues? If he is, it's not going to resonate with mainstream Canada. He needs to really focus. If he focuses on the issues you talked about, like inflation and housing and those sort of things, those are winning issues for us if we focus on that and not this other stuff. Okay. Fred Delory, we have to leave it there for now, but thanks for this. Thanks for having me on. We are going to take the lead on developing an emissions reduction plan that works for Alberta while maintaining our economic growth. And we need to bring them into alignment with what it is that we want to do and get them back to their original commitment of carbon neutrality by 2050. We, we think that that's achievable. We're going to be industry-led on this. We're going to make sure that we're always in alignment with what industry says is achievable, what industry is investing in. And we, it is our job to be an advocate for ourselves and industry about how we're going to reach that target in a way that draws investment in rather than pushes it away. That was the Alberta Premier going into her meeting with federal ministers on energy and climate change. Danielle Smith came out of those talks saying federal plans on emissions and net zero electricity remain damaging to Alberta. And she wants a federal provincial working group to set more reasonable milestones. Federal Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson says the two sides did not fully agree yesterday, but that there was an opportunity to address Alberta's concerns and find a path forward. Let's get some more Alberta reaction to yesterday's talks. Adam Legg is president of the Business Council of Alberta, a group representing CEOs and entrepreneurs in the province. Mr. Legg, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, Premier Smith says uh, her talks with federal ministers were constructive and she's hopeful of agreement on a way forward for energy and emissions. But she's also saying there's a hard line in the sand over the net zero timeline and over what the emissions cap is going to look like in the future. What do you make of what we heard from this federal provincial meeting? Well, I think uh, like Premier Smith, we believe that there is definitely potential for Alberta to be a leader in uh, emissions reduction uh, while also uh, growing our, our oil and gas sector, while growing our hydrogen sector, growing our critical mineral sector. Uh, we do share the belief that the emissions reduction uh, plan uh, by the federal government has overly ambitious targets. Uh, so we do feel some concern about industry being able to achieve those. Uh, based on the Alberta electricity sector, we do believe that the net zero by 2035 is likely unachievable. Uh, if it were to be achievable, it would be incredibly expensive uh, for Albertans to afford energy based on the investment that would be required. So we are encouraging the federal government to reconsider some adaptations some flexibility for both the emissions reduction plan and the clean electricity regulations. Uh, but ultimately, what's important is that the two sides did sit down yesterday and talk. Uh, we can't continue to have these discussions played out over media and uh, by uh, discussions over over the fence, so to speak. 
So it's important that they all sat down yesterday. And um, I believe that there is a path. We have to understand this country is so large. Uh, the resource base is so different. The ability to generate electricity is so different. The one-size-fits-all approach just will not work in this country. And so it's important that we take more regionalized approaches that respect the geography of our, pro of our provinces, the resource bases of our province, and find ways to collectively achieve a target but allowing adaptation for uh, different realities in different parts of the country. And one of the items uh, that Premier Daniel Smith is talking about now is proposing a bilateral working group between the Alberta government and uh, the federal government to work on uh, what she calls a reasonable plan to reduce emissions and on carbon capture. Uh, do you think there is some, some common ground? I mean, you talked about the potential flexibility. Uh, can there be something, for instance, on carbon capture incentives or some of these other measures? Absolutely. I believe it's important. I've met with both the provincial government and the federal government in recent weeks, and I can tell you that despite some of the media rhetoric, that there is a desire, a sincere desire to work together to enable uh, Alberta to contribute to the country's ambitions, but while doing it in a way that is reflective of what we have here in the province. Um, I think a, a regional uh, table, a regional working group that is comprised of, frankly, federal government, provincial government, industry, indigenous partners, and labor would be an ideal way to have conversations about what is practical, what is pragmatic, what is feasible here in light of the elements of affordability, of security and stability, uh, and, and also uh, environmental ambition. So uh, I believe that both sides do want to achieve something sincere. They want to work together. And I've heard it loud and clear from both of them individually. Um, and it's now good to see that they're sharing that view collectively as they come out of their meetings yesterday. Okay, I want to take a step back for a moment and, and put this discussion into the context of what policymakers face right now, especially uh, with the U.S. IRA and those clean energy subsidies. And we're seeing now this lure for companies to move their operations south to the U.S. As these political talks are going on at a high level uh, about climate change and energy policy and emissions, what are the stakes right now for the Alberta economy? Well, frankly, I think it's the stakes for the entire country's economy, entire country's prosperity. Uh, we've seen the United States uh, increase the incentive, the cash incentive game to historic levels with the Inflation Reduction Act. In fact, not only Canada, but many countries around the world are figuring out whether they can compete. We know we just simply cannot compete at scale with the heft of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a $300 billion incentive package. So what we have to do is figure out if we want to attract capital to help decarbonize our economy, if we want to make sure that we can put the investments in that will enable us to generate jobs and income uh, investment uh, prosperity, the ability to, for Canada to contribute to some of the challenges that the world faces, whether it be in energy, whether it be in food, we have to attract the capital. And right now, we can't compete from an incentive, financial incentive standpoint, although it looks like in certain sectors we're trying. Um, so other key parts of decisions are, are around regulation. And that's an area where we're encouraging the federal government to make sure we are a world's best in regulatory approvals and permitting. Um, and so what I would say is what's at stake, uh, our ability to attract continued battery manufacturing, our ability to attract investment for critical minerals mines uh, in, uh, in Ontario, or our ability to invest in hydrogen uh, here in Alberta and, and BC, our ability to invest in, in LNG off the coast of BC, our ability to uh, attract uh, renewable companies or geothermal or even nuclear 
all of those things, that basket of investments that are going to be needed to ensure decarbonization investment jobs and growth uh, will be at risk if if the U.S. beats us at the incentive game and then also uh, could potentially beat us at the regulatory game. So lots at stake. Uh, and I think we need to really think strategically about where Canada wants to differentiate itself and be a, a global leader, not only in the activities, but also in how we're going to attract that capital. Okay, and I know your group has just recently put out a new report on the net zero economy and and that regulatory process, warning that without some big changes, uh, Canada will struggle to reduce emissions and get big projects off the ground. Tell me what you believe needs to happen specifically on the regulatory front. Well, the ultimate premise is that uh, we have a, a very high set of ambitions for emissions reduction in this country, and the requirement is for a lot of capital to build the projects that will be needed to then contribute to reducing the emissions. Our regulatory and approvals process in Canada is such that it will be virtually impossible for us to uh, get approval and build the projects we need to do by 2030, which is our Paris target commitment. So what is needed is change on the regulatory uh, approvals process and permitting process in this country for those large projects that need to go through the Impact Assessment Agency uh, or the Canadian Energy Regulator. We need to focus on improved participation. That's primarily with Indigenous communities uh, to ensure that they are active participants in a process, they're engaged, that they have equity participation opportunities with projects that run through the communities. We need to make sure that the participation in our regulatory re review process is for those that have actual standing, those have impacts and potential to be impacted by projects, as opposed to letting anyone, particularly foreign interveners uh, that are funded foreign uh, sources to in interfere with some of the processes that we have in place. Secondly, we need to ensure that the process is right, that we streamline it. We scale the review processes to the scope and size and magnitude of a project and not put everything through the maximum amount of time possible that we ensure that the departments within the federal government are providing their information requests and their reviews on a timely basis as required by the uh, in Impact Assessment Act. Um, and then finally, how do we make sure that, um, that we have uh, predictability, that there is a certainty that once a company goes through a process that they are going to get the permits that they require. So we are encouraging the federal government to ensure that uh, there is a coordinator of the permitting process post-impact assessment review so that the permitting process doesn't get lost in the various departments within the federal government. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, that the that the criteria that the Minister of Environment and Climate Change could use to designate a project is defined. Right now, it's a unilateral power, which is highly undefined, which makes companies and investors very nervous. Uh, and finally, how do we make sure that the participation from Indigenous communities can be real? And so encouraging the federal government to have some kind of federal uh, program like the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation, which creates a federal or a provincial loan guarantee, which enables companies to go and, and, and get equity or debt financing, which enabled the investment of the Athabasca partnership with Enbridge to acquire a large stake in a, in a material project, uh, which will generate prosperity for the 15 Indigenous nations that are participating in that project. We need something of a national scale and scope that will enable communities to participate and seek uh, prosperity to generate uh, jobs and to achieve economic reconciliation. So uh, process, participation and predictability are the three key things we think need to be addressed in the review process. 
Okay, Adam Legg, President of the Business Council of Alberta. Thanks for your time on this. Thanks, Andrew. A new season is starting with a warning to expect another summer of record high wait times in hospital emergency rooms and more closures. That's according to a report in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and it echoes the message from doctors and nurses that Canada's ERs remain in crisis. Let's bring in Linda Silas, president of the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions. Ms. Silas, thanks for joining me on this. My pleasure. So the CMA uh, Journal says this summer will be precarious and exhausting for ER staff, that there will be dire outcomes for patients, for providers, and for the system as a whole. So certainly a bleak outlook. What's the current situation for nurses, and what can they expect on the front line over the next few months? It's the same, Andrew. You know, we have to see our ER system as the front door to our healthcare system. So what's happening in the ER is double, triple the effect on the floors from med surge to labor delivery to mental health services. Uh, the summer is going to be as bad as last summer. And that's hard on our nurses, our doctors, of course, because they can't provide the care they want to. But it's hard and really hard on our communities thinking, when will this end? So then what is the upshot for patient care? You talk about the staffing shortages yeah. uh, and the domino effect. What are you expecting to see this summer? Well, longer waits, uh, more people in the ER. You know, you saw the horror visions we saw last summer. And it continued through the years. It's not only a summer uh, event. It's really uh, continuing on where patients just sit there for hours and hours because there's no uh, doctors, nurse practitioners to see them immediately to do their assessment. And then... Often they have to wait because there's no beds for them in the hospital itself. Uh, we have to revamp our whole health care system. We know that. We need more primary health care. We know, need more long-term care, more mental health. But we have to do that parallel at the same time that we service those communities that need uh, the emergency rooms open, that need hospital beds open, and we need enough staff to do that. So then what are the short-term measures the governments need to move on? Because you have talked about uh, some of the examples you gave are, are really multi-year uh, projects, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we have to look at a long-term vision of our healthcare system. But immediately what nurses, what doctors, what other healthcare professionals are asking is respect me. Respect me as a healthcare professional. Respect me as a human being that I have a life outside this facility and let me do a great job. So what employers are stuck in doing right now is going to agencies. So they're paying $200 an hour for a nurse who will come to fill a hole in a rotation while her co-worker, the permanent, the committed staff, is paid $50 an hour and will be mandated to do overtime. So we really need to look how do we treat our committed staff and how do we make their life easier with more support staff, with, uh, of course, better rotation, better staffing measures? And all of that can be done by us all working together with the committed staff we have. Now, the federal health minister was asked uh, about this yesterday and says 
that there is some progress being made on staff retention, on recruitment and on recognition of credentials. Do you agree with that assessment? There's a lot of work being done on internationally educated healthcare professional. Uh, the federal government and the province and territories have put a lot of energy there and need it, need it. We needed it 10 years ago, so it's being done now. We're seeing a lot of governments giving bonuses here and there. And are they working? We don't know yet. But really, we only have two provinces where they're a beacon of light. British Columbia, they've just implemented or in the process of implementing mandated nurse-patient ratio. Minister Dick said it's my responsibility to make sure there's enough nursing staff to take care, properly take care of our patients, safely take care of our patients. So they've implemented uh, nurse-patient ratios. And now they have the highest salaries also across the country. And then there's Nova Scotia, where the premier is really giving a commitment to his nursing staff that uh, we're going to work with your union. We're going to have better wages, better working condition. And fingers crossed, they'll be talking about nurse-patient ratios soon there. The rest, it's a real challenge. And as you say, uh, you give some examples there of promise, uh, provinces uh, taking some action with new measures. We've seen provinces and the federal government promising more money and more measures uh, to ease the pressure uh, and the situations with staffing uh, and wait times. It certainly got a lot of media attention and political attention over the past year. I know you just gave a couple of uh, specific examples, but overall, uh, is there anything uh, that's giving you a sense of optimism about what everyone is calling an ER crisis? Well, optimism is a big word. Everyone's talking about it. So that means we will see action if we continue on putting the pressure. I see the same situation as I saw last summer. Uh, and I'm hoping that by September, we will be able to say that the federal government, the province and territories are really continuing to build uh, the recovery, complete the recovery of health care uh, post-COVID. I know we're still in COVID, but I mean, post the two year of crisis, uh, we needed to rebuild our healthcare workforce. We need to do it. For CFNU, we'll be meeting with the premiers at the Council of Federal Federation with examples, again, on how we can all work together to retain that's the number one thing right now is really to stop the bleed. We cannot let one doctor leave. We cannot let one nurse leave. We cannot let one healthcare professional leave our system. So what will it take to have you stay in our system so we can serve Canadian properly and we will all work together to reform our healthcare systems for a better system? Okay, we have to leave it there. Linda Silas, good to get your view on this. Thanks again. Thank you. And that's Primetime Politics for Tuesday. I'm Andrew Thompson, and for everyone at CPAC, thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time.